Well, welcome everybody to City Life. As Nate already said, glad y'all made it through uh, Tropical Storm Hermine, I believe. I, I went on the Weather Channel to make sure I'm saying it right. I'm sure some of the Harry Potter fans are protesting, calling it Hermione. Hermione? Hermione. You tell I read the books and watched the movies. But uh, congratulations, you made it out. I know for some of you, you guys, like, that wasn't the sacrifice. Loading my family into a car in the middle of a tropical storm, that wasn't the sacrifice. Missing college football was the sacrifice. For you, I also salute you. Welcome to City Life. And the, uh, I'm up here leading deep cries out. And, you know, when you're leading worship, there's a voice in the back of your head. You're still thinking. When I'm preaching right now, I'm still thinking. And uh, I was just thinking about the irony we haven't sang a song in a while, and of course, when there's a tropical storm, we're talking about deep waters, all kinds of just, I'm like, we're we going to break into let it rain. So the irony there was, was thick. But uh, Steph and I, we're actually, our anniversary, six-year anniversary is on Monday. So we're taking off tomorrow morning, hopefully taking off tomorrow morning to go to Florida for a couple days. And I haven't even looked at the weather because I figure I'm not even going to stress it because I can't control it. So whatever happens, happens. But I know many of you are off, fresh off some vacations. You traveled. You went different places. So let me pick your refreshed brains. If you could just plan, like if you were planning for me, the perfect trip, the perfect short vacation, what are some elements that would be involved? Good food. Yeah, that was overwhelming number one on Family Feud. And mark that for whatever. Rest, lots of sleep, sun, hoping, fingers crossed. The beach, right? Fun. We are going to take a day in Disney World, so that'll be fun. What's that? A good book. I got, I'm finishing The Lord of the Rings, so those analogies will finally be through soon. <laughs> Studying some books for... <laughs> She got some woos out of that. So the next series, and then I've got Iron Fist. I'm bringing that as well. So, Greg, you can appreciate that. But uh, So, lots of books. Yeah, anything else? Money. Yeah. Let's be serious. It's like one big anniversary gift. Yep. But tonight I want to look at a trip where everything went right, where it was like reverse Murphy's Law, where, where everything fell into place for him. It would as, be as if we scripted it for him, and it's in the book of Ezra. See, Ezra was a teacher. He was a scribe, he was a scholar, and he led this key trip in the Old Testament of the Israelites out of exile back to Jerusalem. And God, what's so remarkable is that he moved the heart of a pagan, secular king to allow, encourage, and even fund this trip for Ezra and the Israelites, this return from exile. And God gave this king such a sense of urgency that he did it in the first year of his reign. Like, this was one of his priorities, that I'm going to bless these people that have been living in exile here. It's crazy that the king himself and the officials, they donated gold and silver for the rebuilding, and then Ezra leaves with them. He's like, I don't need protection. I'm going to pray. They fasted, and they made it all the way with no Hermines or enemies along the way. It's an incredible story. I'd encourage you to read it. Ezra and Nehemiah are slept on, but those are two of my favorite books in the Bible. It says multiple accounts, though, in the book of Ezra. As you're like, well, how did he walk in such favor? It says multiple times that the hand of the Lord was upon him, that the hand of God was upon Ezra. And you read the story of Ezra, it's almost like Psalm 139, verse 5, walked out, which says, you go before me and you follow me. You place your hand of blessing upon my head. And you know, like Nate was saying, it's uh, one of two welcome weekends. So we're, we're going to hit a little bit tonight on what we believe is a church. And at the heart of our church, at the heart of our message is this idea of heaven now, heaven forever. There is an eternal heaven to come. 
the, the depth of eternity or the, the measure of eternity isn't just length, but it's also depth. That God wants to give us abundant life here on earth. And we realize that, that earth isn't heaven. You read Psalm 27 where David says, I would have lost hope if I didn't think I'd see the goodness of God in the land of the living. And he's in a tough spot when he wrote that song. You know, you look at the story of Ezra where the hand of God is upon Ezra. They're coming out of decades in exile. But God wants to demonstrate his goodness even in the tough seasons. You know, David had faith for it in the midst of his toughest seasons. The Israelites had faith for it even while they were yet in exile, and we should too. Heaven now, heaven forever. And then three core beliefs here at City Life as well are these. The goodness of God, the potential of people, and the centrality of the church. That God is good, you have a purpose, and you can find both in his church. We aren't called to just suffer through life and wait for heaven after we pass. We aren't called to sit idly by. We're called to step into God's plans and his purposes. You know, we've, I think, hit on James 1.17 the past two weeks, this idea that God is a giver of good gifts. You know, that he gives us the greatest gift, salvation. And I love that in Ephesians 2, it talks about how we're saved by grace through faith, the greatest gift we will ever receive. But then right after that, just moments after that, words after that, it talks about our purpose so that we can do that which he prepared in advance for us to do. And I think more of us would step bravely into our purpose, boldly into our purpose, out of our comfort zones and into our callings, if we had special assurance that it would play out for us like it did for Ezra. Because he walked in favor. The hand of the Lord was upon him. So the question is, well, well, what kind of person does the hand of the Lord rest upon? How do I ensure that I can walk in this Ezra-like favor? And that's a, a deep layered question, but in Ezra chapter 7, verse 10, they spell it out for us. It says, this was because Ezra had determined to study and obey the law of the Lord and to teach those decrees and regulations to the people of Israel. It's a powerful verse. It's one I want to dig into and camp on tonight. But you might say, well, all right, well, I'm not a preacher. I'm not a scholar. I'm not a teacher. So how does this apply to me? And I would just uh, introduce to some, reintroduce to many that may have forgotten the, the great commission that says in Matthew 28, 19 through 20, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And what? Teaching. Teaching them to obey all that I've told you. There's potential and purpose in people. And we might have specific purposes, specific callings. Some of you might literally be called to teach in a school. Some of you might call to serve as a police officer. Some of you might be called to serve as a doctor or a salesman or a realtor. There are specific callings on every life in here. But there's also universal purpose when you're a part of the church. To spread the gospel, to walk out the Great Commission, to make disciples, and to teach. You know what Jesus says as you walk this out, as you do these three things, he says, surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. As you disciple, as you baptize, as you teach, my hand will be upon you as you do these three things. And what's also interesting is there's three verbs there in the Great Commission, and there's three verbs that Ezra walks out in this verse in Ezra 7.10. says he studies the law, obeys the law of the Lord, and teaches its decrees and laws. Those are three important steps. And because I'm a a pastor and all pastors have alliteration addiction, as Pastor Fred would call it, 
three things that we should determine to do as we follow Christ. To determine to discover, determine to demonstrate, and declare. To know the way, to go the way, to show the way. To study, to obey, and then to teach. Maybe you're like, well, I'm not a teacher, and I don't know that I'm called to declare. Well, let me go to another Bible verse you might have forgot. 1 Peter 2.9 says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may what? Declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And what I love about this, discovering, demonstrating, and declaring, is it's not based on charisma. It's not based on personality. It's not based on your skill set. It's not based on style. It's not reliant on your genetics. Anybody can do these three things. Study, obey, and declare. Anybody. And everyone who follows God is called to them. So tonight, you know, over the two weeks, I want to dig into this passage, dig into this idea. But tonight, I just want to look at the first two. How do we take a step from discovering to demonstrating? Knowing to obeying. Because it's a big step. You know, up until I was 21 years old, I was raised in the church. I like to joke with people and say I was a drug baby, and they look at me crazy. But I was like, because my parents dragged me to church all throughout my youth. So I knew all about Jesus. I knew all the stories they would tell you in Sunday school. I knew my Bible pretty well, but I obeyed very little of it. I had discovered all kinds of truth, but I was demonstrating none of it in my life. You know, and even after I came to know Christ, there were seasons in my life where I didn't need to know more. I just needed to learn to be obedient to what I already knew. This step from discovering to demonstrating is a huge step in our lives. But again, it all starts with will you dedicate yourself to discover God's truth? Will you dedicate yourselves, as Ezra did, to studying, to knowing the way so that you can go the way? You know, this is where it started with me. Again, I was 21. I was a senior at William Mary. I had this loft because we had packed three guys into one room. It was crazy, but they're all lifelong friends, so it worked out. But I would wake up early in the morning before class, and I just read through Romans. Partially God's providence because Romans is so deep, but also because of pride. Because I was like, I knew all about Jesus. I learned about that when I was a kid. I'm going to skip ahead past the Gospels. I already know all that. Let me read Romans. But that was every day. I would write it in my schedule. Read the Bible. But, you know, maybe for some, I was an English major. I enjoyed reading. How many of you do not enjoy reading, right? Studying, reading, you're like, ah, that's not me. So let me just, advise, a little piece of advice. When you're writing it down in your, in your planner, as you should, make it a priority. I'm trying to find one of these with at least the least amount of steps backwashing it. She's not in here. She's, it's cool. Totally lost my place. Yeah, so when you're writing down in your planner to spend time with God. If you don't like reading, don't put reading. Put communion with God, meeting with God. Just put God. Because if you believe in the word of God, then you believe it's living and active. That is God's word. That you're stepping into an encounter with God. It's much more than just reading words on a page. This is more than a book. And when that shifts your perspective, then it transcends from simply studying to, I'm going to meet with God. I'm going to read my word until some verse jumps off the page, and then I'm going to start praying based on that verse, and I'm just going to pursue God in this moment. But, you know, in Acts 2, 42, 
says that these new believers in the book of Acts that were coming in by the thousands, the one description it starts with is they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What were the apostles' teaching? Well, these guys had seen what Jesus taught firsthand. They, were, they had seen how Jesus walked firsthand. These people were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching because they wanted to know who Jesus was, what he was like, and what he taught. And if you look at Jesus' teaching in the Gospels, and you look at his preaching, his teaching, the, the longest one we have, the most prolific teaching we have in the Gospels is the Sermon on the Mount. And at the heart and the core of the Sermon on the Mount is what I would put my money down on as the most challenging verse in the Bible. The one you read and you're like, all right, I'm done. <laughs> Matthew 5, 48, Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Can you imagine being in the crowd when he said that. Like, what did he just say? Like, beef and pork is my father's favorite? Because I know he didn't just say, be perfect as my father. He couldn't have just said that, right? Like, come again? Because only God is perfect. I think any of us realize, I'm never going to be perfect in this life. But this isn't a call to be a God, a deity, but it is a call to be godly. And the Bible is full of teaching to help us live godly lives. Matter of fact, Peter is so bold as to say in his letter to the church that God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. So when Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, and he calls us to godliness, we need to realize that God has given us everything in his word that we need for living a godly life. As you know, as we've talked these past couple weeks on prayer, we've reflected on this fact that God is sovereign, but he's not a, a sovereign dictator. He's a sovereign father, and he loves us, and he cares for our development. He loves uh, just keeping track of where we at as we pursue and we follow him. As you know, I, if you've been coming here any amount of time, or you know Steph and I, we're in the, the process of adopting from India. Small Indian boys, 10 months tomorrow. No, wait, 11 months tomorrow. 10 months old now, turns 11 months tomorrow. His name will be Titus Shivraj White. So we don't know if we're going to call him Titus or Raj, so I'll probably say different things in every sermon, so don't get confused. But you, you maybe have heard the phrase, like father, like son. And some of you guys, I would look at you and I would look at your son and I'd be like, I don't know if you had a kid or you cloned yourself because you guys look so much alike. Raj and I are never going to have that problem, Right? I see people like their child is kicking and screaming and they're taking them out of like Walmart to go discipline them. I'm like, if I do that with Raj, it's going to look like I'm kidnapping somebody. Like I, just practical things I'm thinking in my head, like what is that going to play out like? Seriously, though, I don't know what I'm going to do yet. But from mannerisms to responses to facial expressions to pet phrases to his behavior and hopefully to his heart, there will eventually be a remarkable resemblance. It'll take time. It won't be immediate. But you spend enough time around somebody, you're going to start to act like them, right? Just those roommates I lived with my senior year, three guys packed into a room. We started saying the same things, joking each other the same ways. And you see, the thing is, we don't know what Jesus looked like physically, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> Our call isn't to look like Jesus physically. It's funny because it says in Ephesians, we're adopted into the family. The same way Raj isn't going to look like me physically, but he might take on my heart. We're called to take on the heart of Jesus, take on his character. That's a good thing because I'm never going to be Jewish. I'm never going to have his genes, but I can hopefully have a character and a faith that is a lot like his. And as I spend more time with him and as you spend more time with him and as you pursue him, you'll become more and more like him. 
You know, the call again in Matthew 5.48 is not to be a God, but it is a call to be godly. I'll never be Christ, but I'm called to be Christ-like. And I believe that one of the biggest struggles in the Christian walk is taking that step from knowing a truth to living that truth. From knowing about Christ and his teaching to walking like him. From discovering something to be true to demonstrating in my life through obedience. You know, some people, maybe you've heard it said, will miss heaven by 18 inches. Don't miss heaven by 18 inches, the measurement from your head to your heart. And you know, confession time as your pastor, studying, writing, preaching, it took time, but that's easy for me. That's the easy part. That's the, the, the head part. The hard part for me is making sure that I practice what I preach. Making sure that what occupies my head through the week that I get ready to preach on a Saturday, that that's also occupying my heart. That that's something I'm walking out. Because out of studying, obeying, and teaching these three things that Ezra did, let's be serious, obeying is the hardest. <laughs> I think that's why we so often skip it. And that's why you've got the church with the right information shouting it from the rooftops. When it's lost, it's witness because it's hardly living any different than the world. We've skipped one of Ezra's steps. We jump from discovery to declaration without demonstrating the truth in our lives. And I want to look at one problem, why I think this is the case in the church, and then hopefully one solution. And the problem is this. I think a lot of Christians could be diagnosed with what I would call a conviction addiction. We like conviction because unlike condemnation, there's hope in conviction. Condemnation says you've exhausted God's grace, you should be ashamed of yourself, and you should just quit. But there's hope in conviction because conviction says, hey, there's forgiveness, there's grace. But we can walk out of a service where we've been convicted, thinking that we're walking in faith when we're standing in hope, or we stood in hope for a moment, like we talked about last week. You know, I've been to a, a, almost 10, nine, so we can't say 10. We went to nine camps. We've been to all kinds of conferences, weekly services for a decade now, and, and you see it play out like a, a rerun on Nick at Night. Moments of, oh, that's good. That'll preach, lots of amens. I need that, this recognition that I need to change. Then maybe you go and you, you cry at an altar, and then you're like, all right, all right, I'm good. You go back to life just as you were living it. You know, conviction and change are two very different things. Discovering the truth that you need to apply to your life and actually applying it and demonstrating it in obedience, that's a huge step. Conviction is good, but it's the first step. You know, Alcoholics Anonymous I'm not speaking from experience here. You, you, you know, you start with, hi, I'm fill in the blank, and I'm an alcoholic. That act of admitting the problem, that's the first step. But it's the first step of 12. It's the first step of many actions. As you know, I think at times in my history, I would go to a church service, get convicted, and then I'd step up to the altar and say, hey, God, it's me, Justin, and I've been struggling with fill in the blank. And then for me, that was the culmination. Like, that was the, the moment of transformation. And I think some of us are still convinced that that's the point of Christianity. We think that's the culmination. But conviction without any subsequent action, it's not faith in action. That's, that's fantasy. <laughs> there are a lot of people in the church living a dream in a fantasy world because like we talked about last week and we talked about a moment ago, they'll stand in hope at an altar, but they won't walk that out in faith. They won't take what they just realized, that truth that they need to apply to their life, and they never get to demonstrating it. You know, revelation demands a response. 
Revelation demands application. You know, every time I write a sermon, I try to think, okay, the why. Why is this important? But then at the end, the how. How do we walk this out? How does this affect how I live next week? What is the application to any of this truth? Because information without implementation, again, is why we've got so many Christians who know all the right answers, but they make all the wrong decisions. They want to shout the way, they want to show the way, but they don't want to go the way. Again, information without implementation, conviction without change, it's nothing better than a temporary hallucination. You get your your hit of hope and then you go back to life as it was. It's like the people of Israel who would listen to the prophet Ezekiel. It says in Ezekiel 33, God says, hey, they sit before you to listen to your words, but they don't put them into practice. They studied, they discovered truth, but they never obeyed. They discovered, but they never demonstrated it with obedience. It says they came and went because it was like watching a skilled musician. That's what it says in the Bible. You know, I I don't know who your favorite podcast is, I'd love to do a participation moment, just write them all down. You can tell me later, but there are guys I love to listen to preach that are just incredible at exhorting, incredible about moving you with the word of God. They can make a grown man cry. But being moved for a moment is useless if there's no lasting change. You know, our conviction addiction is serious because it keeps us from changing our bad habits and our actual addictions. It keeps us from casting off the sin that so easily entangles. You know, in Hebrews 12, verse 1, it was a powerful verse for me when I gave my life to Christ. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Again, I was a senior in college, 21 years old living a wreck of a life as a teenager. So when I was 21 and I went to church that night, I had multiple addictions in my life, things that had entangled and wrapped me up that I needed to let go of. Two of the biggest ones, alcohol and pornography, just running rampant in my life. And the biggest step, other than devoting my life to Christ, was to devote my life to the church, to his church. You know, I saw a powerful TED Talk. uh, It was a while ago. I want to say it's about a year old, but it's on our perspective with addiction and our perspective on addiction and, and, and possible solutions for it. And it looked at heroin, right? That's where this guy started. Because in the medical community, it's known as diamorphine. It's a more pure and potent version than the kind you would get off the streets. And there are people getting deluxe heroin at the hospital right now that maybe just broke their hip, right? It's the same thing, but it, it's not called heroin. And they don't go home addicted. And so there was an experiment where a, a doctor put this rat in a cage with One water bottle full of pure water, the other water bottle filled of water filled with drugs, and this rat alone in his cage kept drinking the the drugged up water until it finally died. But then finally another scientist was like, well, wait, what if we put a bunch of rats, a happy family of rats with a community and all the toys they need and all the food they need, right, all those things we just listed for a good trip, right, put them in a cage with these two different waters, what would happen? So they did that. And none of these rats went to the drugged up water. They just drank the good water. And it's funny because at the same time, we were able to experience this with with humans because the Vietnam War was going on. And overseas, there were all these soldiers who were in the the, the field of battle. They were taking heroin, a large number to the the point where news reports were like, what are we going to do with all these soldiers when they come home? And they had psychiatrists follow them. And what's remarkable is these guys didn't have to go back into rehab. They didn't relapse. 95% of them stopped when they got home. 
It's because they were reconnected with society, reconnected with loved ones. Why would they want to do heroin? And this guy said, maybe we shouldn't even call it addiction. Maybe we should call it bonding. Because in life, we're built for connection. If you feel empty, if you feel lonely, you'll bond with something. Whatever it is, a person, gambling, pornography, shopping, heroin, eating, your phone. (laughs) Again, we went to nine camps with youth. One of the rules for a lot of these camps was you can't have your phone, use your phone, bring your phone. You tell a student that, you would think you just told a heroin addict that they ain't going to have any heroin anymore. Like, sorry, your dealer's gone. But, you know, after a week, worshiping together, eating together, bonding with each other, connecting with each other, and connecting with God, most of them would tell you at the end of the week, that that wasn't that bad because they've been connecting with other people. And, you know, the, the key to this TED Talk was this statement that the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. It's interesting. And you can see different takes, people that would debate this, but we know spiritually that what these psychiatrists are calling bonding, spiritually we know that's trying to fill a void. It says in Ecclesiastes that we were created with an eternity-sized void in our hearts. And all those things I listed that we try to bond with, it might fill that void for a season, but only God can fill that void eternally. Only God. If you don't believe me, look at our culture. Surely we're the most blessed of any generation, especially here in our culture. Yet just like the despair of Ecclesiastes, it flowed from the meaningless excess during Israel's golden age. Depression and suicide runs rampant in our physically blessed culture. But surely we can overcome that, right, because we're so connected. I mean, look at all these social media outlets and all the different ways we can connect with people in an instant. But that assumption would be wrong because we've traded faithful friends for Facebook friends. We're connected, but it's a weak connection, and we live lonely lives. We've created a society where loneliness runs rampant, according to any and all surveys. You know, it's not surprising either because isolation, it's a result of sin. You look at Genesis in the garden, the first sin. They were mentally isolated, psychologically isolated with shame and guilt. They were uh, uh, relationally isolated. They tried to push guilt onto one another. Isolation is a result of sin, but it's also a root of sin. We need connection. You know, I love that Acts 2.42 that we opened with. It says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. To the apostles' teaching, to study, and then to fellowship and to the church. See, God's word provides the truth we need to grow, but God's people provide the connection we need to grow. Because, again, for me to grow, I needed to take off a lot of sin that was an addiction, a lot of sin that had me entangled that I maybe didn't want to tell people about. But as I got rooted into the church and I began sharing and confessing those things where it would be cast down. I don't know where I'd be if I only dedicated my life to God but never dedicated my life to being a part of his church. See, we're called to belong. We're called to believe, but we're also called to belong. The church will extend its reach. It'll grow when it becomes a place that you don't have to believe to belong. Where you can be with us even if you don't agree with us. Because, again, we've said it before, without contact, there's no impact. God wants to impact your life. He wants to impact every life. But he also wants to connect your life. And it, Some religions, right, they see spiritual maturity as escaping distraction escaping the distraction of other people, this idea of escaping to a monastic mountain monastery. 
doing life by yourself where there's no distraction. And sure, isolation is good. Steph and I are, again, escaping to Orlando. And we're going to go to Disney once to run about like a million people. But then there's also going to be moments of isolation. I'm going to read a lot. I'm going to rest a lot. I'm going to be by myself a lot. Isolation is good, but it's an escape, right? Jesus isolated himself a lot. He would go out and pray in the middle of the night. He would go up onto the mountaintop like the transfiguration, but then he would come out of those moments for more ministry, for serving, for teaching. You know, if true spiritual maturity is learning to love like Jesus, and this is how Jesus lived his life, then you can't love in isolation. You've got to be connected. Jesus was a friend of sinners, too. I love that phrase because they weren't projects. They weren't just some project he took on. They were true connections. He knew their homes. He knew their careers. He knew their hopes and dreams. He knew their fears, and he even knew their kids. I love y'all's kids. We got some crazy kids. Maybe uh, y'all can start getting viral because there was this kid. Maybe Jesus knew a kid like this. We'll watch this video right quick. Worry about yourself. Worry about yourself. Can I help? No. I help. I don't. You can help when we're out to you, okay? You can help when we're out to you. Okay. Do you have, do you have this, Sussie? Probably. You want me to help, Rose? No. Thank you. No, thank you. What do you want me to do? Worry about yourself. <laughs> Worry about yourself. I'll do this one, so I'm going to do that. You drive! <laughs> what about yourself? Go drive! Go! You know, we laugh because it's cute, because she's a little naive, right? And she's funny. You know, this girl's favorite phrase as a teenager will probably be, mind your business, right? Mind your own business. Worry about yourself. Steph and I will say that often, just because of that video. I don't know you believe it, because you've seen her videos. But, uh... You know, I, I watch that in light of what we're talking about tonight, and I think, how many of us is that us in our walk? Spiritually, we're fumbling around, we're stumbling around, we're trying to do life in isolation under the guise of independence, say, hey, worry about yourself. I got this. We cry at an altar, we get convicted at an altar, and then on the way out, it's like, hey, mind your business, right? People ask you how you're doing, it's always, I'm blessed, I'm good, I'm great. It's always the, the go-to response. It's, it's, it's a good thing, right? Like the little girl was like, no, thank you. Before she said, worry about yourself again. It's like our polite way of saying, mind your business. I'm good. I'm great. Don't worry. I got this. And I'm not saying we need to walk out of here and just bleed with everybody. Like, oh, you want to know how I'm really doing? You got 10 minutes, right? I'm not talking about that. But there needs to be people in your life who when they ask you, hey, how are you doing? They get a true, heartfelt, accountable answer. Mind your business is not found anywhere in the Bible. Because it's real easy to convince yourself when you're doing life on your own, that you're doing pretty good. And isolated holiness is an untested holiness. That's why mind your business isn't found in the Bible. What is found in the Bible? Well, over 50 times in the New Testament, we see the phrase either one another or each other. Love one another. Be devoted to one another. Honor one another. Rejoice with one another. Serve one another. Carry one another's burdens. Forgive one another. Encourage one another. Offer hospitality to one another. Confess to one another. Pray for one another. Each one of those phrases highlights and underlines and highlights again this reality that the church isn't just supposed to be a place of services and programs, but a shared 
connected life. Because a life that's healthy spiritually will be connected spiritually. You know, when the church drops the ball is when we preach community, but we don't, we don't live like it. When we preach the importance of connection, but we don't act like it. Go into a church, spend an entire service there, and don't meet anybody. No highs, no nothing. You know, an invitation to a church without an invitation to connect ultimately rings hollow. An invitation to a church, once I take you up on it, should be followed pretty quickly with an invitation to connect. Whether that's a hello or let's do lunch, let's do dinner, whatever. You know, one of my favorite Bible verses when I reflect on years of ministry is 1 Thessalonians 2.8. Where it says, because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Not only the gospel, not only the good news, but our lives as well. You know, if you question whether connection is a goal for us, you should take another look at those announcements, right? Men's retreat, men's group biweekly. I think we had to cancel this morning for Hermine, you know, we had to be home for the wives and the kids, make sure everything was straight at home, but whatever. Woman's brunch, life groups are kicking off in October. In two weeks, we've got Discovering City Life. We're doing everything short of coming and knocking on your door, right? Because that's creepy. Doesn't stop some people. <laughs> you know, the people that come onto your door and they ask, hey, do you know Jesus? What's funny is if you went to every door, according to some surveys, and asked people, hey, do you know Jesus? 75% would say, yeah, I'm a Christian. I believe. But then it's funny, you look at our culture and you're like, well, are we living it? Because I don't see it. Talk three quarters of our nation, like, if we're the salt of the earth, it doesn't take much salt to change the, the taste of my plate. Just a couple pinches, right? If I had three quarters of a pound of salt and I pour that on my plate, I should taste it. I should see it. I should know that it's there. But again, we're a generation that, that skipped one of the steps. We discover, we declare, but are we demonstrating? That's why 2 Corinthians 13, 5, it says, test yourself. Test yourself as you grow to see whether you're in the faith. I love the message version. It says, hey, test it out. Fail the test. Do something about it. If I could have the worship team come up, a better question than, do you know Jesus? Yeah, yeah, I know Jesus. Demons know of Jesus. They tremble, right? Are you following Jesus? Are you following Jesus? Am I following Jesus? Is my knowing resulting in obeying? Is the truth I've discovered, am I demonstrating that in my life? Not, are you saved? That's a good question. Do you believe in Jesus? That's a good question. Do you know Jesus? That's a good question. But is your life stretched by his truth day by day? Do my actions conform to his teaching on a daily basis? You know, the life God calls us to, it's more than creeds and convictions. It's a life of conduct and character to look more like Christ every day. Again, the question we should ask ourselves is, am I following Jesus? And at the heart of city life, when we talk about God leading us as a church and as individuals, we talk about what Pastor Fred has coined the 12 pathways, 12 disciplines in our life. And we could spend a week, we could spend an entire series on each one. So that's why we got podcasts on the internet. <laughs> but these are the 12, the 12 pathways. Scripture, prayer, fasting, worship, gathering, relationships, accountability, reaching, service, rest, generosity, and stewardship. You know, as a pastor, a lot of people will come to me and say, I, I feel dry. I feel like I've lost momentum. I feel like I'm drifting. And that's a good thing, because Paul says, hey, test yourself. 
If you, you feel like you're drifting, do something about it. And a lot of times my question will be, hey, well, how are you doing in these 12 areas? What do these look like in your life? And I think we know about all of these. Even if you've never heard of the 12 pathways in your life, you know that these are in the Bible. These are pretty basic. Or we might be learning about them. But the question for many of us is, when I look at that list, am I obeying all of them? Are they active in my life? You know, Ezra, he dedicated himself. The disciples, they devoted themselves. And when you take this list and you commit yourself to them, you devote yourself to them, your faith will grow. You know, our world needs Ezra's, those that know the way, those that go the way, and those that aren't afraid to show the way. So if we could, actually, you know what? Pump fake. These are the 12 pathways. You can look on that screen, they're all up there. And if you would look at that, and as I'm turning around, I'm looking at that, if there's one that you know in your life, man, that's not present, or man, that's weak. Like a muscle that I haven't been using, that's atrophied. Like that needs to be stronger. And you was, it might be one, it might be all, it might be six, it might be two. If you would say, man, I need to practice more generosity. Man, I need to be a better steward of not just the relationships, not just my talents, but even my funds and finances. I need to be more active reaching and evangelizing. Whatever that might be, if you would say there's a pathway in my life that, hey, man, I need to strengthen, just stand. I'm already standing. I'm joining you. Because Pastor Fred has once talked about the slats on a barrel, how each one of these is like a slat on the barrel. You can only fill it up as much as the lowest one. Otherwise, it'll leak out. So tonight, God, God, we thank you that your Holy Spirit is here. God, we thank you that you've done work in our hearts. God, we thank you that some of us might be moved in this moment even to tears. God, as your Holy Spirit convicts us, but we thank you that there's hope and conviction. That guess what? By the grace of God, through, the, through Scripture that, as Peter said, has given us everything we need for godliness, we can walk this out. We're not going to be God, but we can live godly lives. And God, I pray that even now as we're convicted, Lord God, that you would show us practical steps. And God, you would remind us that your grace and mercy follow us, they're in us, and they go before us. God, help us. Give us more faith. Give us what we need, the focus we need, the determination we need, the dedication we need to walk these 12 pathways. Because when we do all 12, we'll glorify you. We'll be that light. We'll be that salt that actually affects the plate. In Jesus' name, amen. You can stay standing. But let me just encourage you. It's one thing to be convicted. And I know at times in my life I would go through moments like that and I had a conviction addiction. I just go back to living how I was because I never connected with anybody. Maybe that's your spouse. Maybe that's somebody you trust. Again, I'm not saying you should go out and just bleed on everybody. Let me tell you. But connect, tell one person where God's telling you to grow. Have them keep you accountable. Hey, everybody was standing. Have them keep you accountable. You can keep them accountable, but let's grow together because we're called to glorify God where he's placed us. And we're going to do that when we walk these 12 pathways. But again, it says in Acts 2.42 that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. You know, if your life is devoted to study and learning 
but you've never devoted yourself to fellowship and the family of faith, let this welcome weekend be your welcome home. Home may not be here. Like they said, you might not even like me, right? But there's somebody where God, some place where God's called you to get rooted and grow. Some of us, we live with the church on our periphery, but in Ephesians 1, 23, it says in the message version, the church you see is not peripheral to the world. The world is peripheral to the church. The church is Christ's body in which he speaks and acts by which he fills everything with his presence. You want the hand of God to be upon you? You want to be filled with the Spirit? Step into his church where he fills everything with his presence. God, we thank you again for your presence here tonight. God, we thank you that your Holy Spirit is here, but that it goes with us, God. What kind of hope would we have if we just only could feel your presence here, only could worship you here? Lord God, I pray that we would become more aware of your presence, God. God, I just pray that you would show yourself strong in each of our lives as we dedicate ourselves to follow you. But God, even in this moment, God, I pray that our response to the conviction in our hearts would just be to worship and to praise. We're gonna go back and to come to the altar. If you wanna come to the altar, take those practical steps to the altar to represent the steps you're gonna take spiritually. You can do that, but we're gonna worship. We're gonna praise God for these next couple minutes. And then we'll close in prayer.